We're far from the shallow now. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. And I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Uh, as always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, which is itself a part of the Ringer.com, which is home to a bunch of good stuff, including Horror Week is the big headlining thing that's going on, which is not, as the title might suggest, uh, a postmortem of the Chicago Cubs uh, performance over the past week or so. It is, in fact, a an exploration of horror movies this being October, the month not only of the baseball playoffs, but of Halloween. And speaking of Halloween, I would encourage you to check out Halloween Unmasked, uh, which is Amy Nicholson's uh, eight-part series uh, investigating Halloween. And she interviews John Carpenter and a bunch of the, the key players in that movie. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, you're not going to find any better content than that. You're also not going to find any better division series preview podcast. And this one We've got Ben Lindbergh with the American League coming up later. But right now, let's go to Zach Cram to talk about the National League. All right. So we have survived, if only just the wild card games. That National League wild card game was a little bit of a siege of Petersburg moment for uh for the baseball world, but we are moving forward to the division series. And here's a man who knows a thing or two about moving forward, Zach Cram, to help me preview the National League end of that bracket. Zach. Hello. I I guess we're two days in and it's already been fun. Yeah, I think so. Um, So let's start with Brewers Rockies. I think this... I certainly didn't expect to end up with this. So the, the Brewers are the have gone from play-in game to top seed in the National League, and their reward is facing a team that has three good hitters and took one of them out of the lineup in the wild card game. And uh, that's sort of where I guess I want to start. So if you look at the American League, th- those are basically four juggernauts, particularly from a public perception perspective, Yankees-Red Sox is kind of the series that will, I'm sure, garner the most headlines over the next few days. Brewers-Rockies is like, if you're a hipster baseball fan, that's the series I think you should be watching. That's the series for us. Uh, We who follow baseball every day of the year for seven months uh, Mm -hmm. because these are two teams with a lot of fun, moving, interesting parts, uh, both uh, Miller Park and Coors Field will provide really uh, unique and entertaining playoff atmospheres. So this certainly isn't the most prestigious series of the four DSs, but I think it is no less intriguing for that uh, for that degradation. Yeah, and I'd say also probably one and two in certainly among the remaining team cities in in Major League Baseball, uh, but possibly overall one and two in beer culture in uh, uh, Milwaukee and Denver. Not just because of the mega breweries they have there, but thriving craft beer scenes as well. the stadiums have, have the names for them too. Yeah. I love Coors Field on, on TV. It's unlike anything else. I don't, I don't know about, like there's something about the way it's lit, um, but I love watching it on TV. It's incredible. So the Rockies are through uh, thanks to the offensive work of Tony Walters and Drew Butera and uh, the heroism of Scott Oberg and Chris Bryant getting himself out. Um, do you take anything? I guess we're going to ask this about both of the wildcard games, but do you take anything away from that? I think the bullpen acquitted itself fairly well. Uh, yes. Adam Adovino obviously allowed a tie score, but I think he is the most trustworthy Rockies reliever, so I'm not too concerned about that going forward, but the depth piece has actually fared pretty well in extra innings, uh, which is a concern for every National League team besides the Brewers, uh, who we'll get to in a second. I'm not 
totally uh, sure about anything. Like we knew Kyle Freeland was good already. I guess the fact that he showed he could do it on short rest was promising, but I'm not sure if he'll be asked to do that again in these playoffs. Uh, I think the Cubs certainly struggled down the stretch, so I don't know if there's too much to take away from holding their offense quiet when so many teams did that in September. So let's look at game one, which starts uh, tonight. Uh, It is a pitching matchup that uh, our friend Ryan O'Hanlon described as Senzatella versus bullpen, um, which could quickly turn into bullpen versus bullpen. Brandon Woodruff's going to get the start for uh, for Milwaukee. It's an interesting setup for the playoff roster because the Brewers have starting pitchers with with a fair amount of track record. I mean, they traded for Gio Gonzalez. You and I were talking about what they could put together at the deadline for somebody like Jacob DeGrom, for instance, and obviously that didn't happen. But they have this is not like the Oakland A's where they just have a bunch of guys who they pulled off the street and they made 12 starts this season. Um, They've got, you know, but they left Chase Anderson off the roster, for instance, and that's leaving them with sort of a a mishmatch uh, of guys who can go three or four innings. And, I, you know, I don't know how trustworthy Wade Miley is in the postseason versus Woodruff versus Javi Guerra, for instance, Um, you know. Game two, it seems like the plan now is to go for Yulis Chassin on short rest, but to uh, to keep a leash, keep a short leash on him, um, and go to the bullpen early. And so, I think the big challenge for Craig Council is to sort of both of these managers, I think, are in a position where they're going to have to manage a lot. And the big challenge for Council will be monitoring the innings because you can get um, Corey Knable or Jeremy Jeffers to probably throw in every game with an off day every other day, or sorry, every third day in the series, even if it goes five. But managing the multi-inning workloads for guys like Burns or guys like Josh Hader, I think will be the big challenge for him. Yeah, and I'm a little skeptical of this plan because it's not just about winning this series. It's about winning this series and the next one and the next one after that. And Even if your relievers hold up fine for these first few games, they need to last the entire month. I'm not sure how much putting this burden on them so early will affect them later on. Craig Council knows this better than I do, but someone like Josh Hader didn't pitch on consecutive days once in September, and he also struggled in September. So is basically ensuring that relievers like him and Jeremy Jeffress, who pitched more stressful innings than almost any reliever in baseball this year, more innings, the best route when at some point in the playoffs, you're going to need guys like Gio Gonzalez to win games for you. Gio Gonzalez is pretty good. And at some point you'll need to rely on a starter other than Chassin. Is that what you think too? Or are you more confident in this plan? I think you, particularly in the first round of the playoffs, you get so many off days that I th- I think the challenge will be when to use Hater and for how long. And even if you don't use Hater in a given game, you still have Knable, Jeffers, and um, and Burns that you can go to. Guys who have been really good out of the bullpen, and you could. Uh, the thing about having four or five guys who, you know, maybe you you've just got to seek out those low leverage innings when you can try to get Miley in a favorable matchup or Garrett in a favorable matchup, and you've got to do a really good job of picking your spots almost to the extent that Terry Francona did um, in 2016 with Andrew Miller. And, you know, we talked about Andrew Miller uh, running out of gas or, or the risk of somebody like Hater running out of gas. Miller was unhittable until literally game seven of the world series. If they close that off in five or six, then that plan works. So the other thing I would say to that is the Brewers have won 
one playoff series in the past 35 years. So let's get out of this round and then we'll figure out what comes next. That's sort of how I would approach this if I were Craig Council. I would be cognizant, certainly, of building up a long time or a long term workload. But let's take care of this first before we we figure out how we're going to pitch to um, the Red Sox in the World Series or or the Astros, the Yankees or whoever. Um, the other thing is, if you can knock, I think that the the Brewers would be very well served to, if they can, end this series early before you get, because if you get to games three and four, right now it's lining up to be Marquez and Freeland in three and four in Coors Field where you can go through five or six relievers at the drop of a hat. And I would want to be in a position to at the very least go in there up 2-0. So I would manage very aggressively if I were uh, Craig Council to try to get up 2-0 early. I think that that would be, they're not screwed if they if they split, you know, but it would be a huge advantage, perhaps even more than even more than usually going up 2-0. It would be a huge advantage for Milwaukee, not just in terms of avoiding to have to face Marquez and Freeland with the season on the line, but to get out of this as soon as as you can and then rest those relievers and try to minimize the the workload. You know, you look back to Cleveland 2016. That's what they did. You know, knocking out Boston early, knocking out Toronto early. That's a one way that they managed to keep the workload down and essentially, you know, and get through a seven game World Series. So I think it's imperative for Milwaukee to, if they can, end this as soon as possible. Yeah, I think Coors Field has an interesting wrinkle here, especially if you're going to go the bullpen route because of what that could mean for workloads and maybe you you make a a pitcher who's not as reliable pitch important innings in course just because you burn through so many relievers uh earlier this season this isn't predictive but in one of their games in course field Milwaukee won 11 to 10 a classic course fields game uh the only other follow up i have to that though is like in 2016 when Cleveland made its run even though the best starters besides Corey Kluber were injured, they still did get high-quality innings from their starters. In his first three starts of that postseason, Josh Tomlin had a 1.76 ERA in 15 in a third inning. So he still was, at least through the first couple rounds, putting in five good innings to start and allowing Cleveland to pick at spots with Miller and Allen. Uh, I'm not saying I'm doubting Council, and if he goes up 2-0 and is able to strategically position his bullpen for the later games, then he'll look like the genius. I'm just not 100% convinced of the long-term feasibility of it. But on the other hand, like the Rockies, because they lost to the Dodgers on Monday in the tiebreaker game and then had to go into Wrigley on Tuesday, like you said, they most likely don't have their best starters until they're already back home. It's not like I trust Antonio Senzatella any more than I do with the Brewers middle relievers. And the the last thing I say I'll I'd say about that is even though guys like Tomlin pitched well, the Indians didn't get a whole lot of volume out of anybody but Kluber. You know, you think about the Trevor Bauer blood game um where he was out after an inning or two and Tom even Tomlin was only going five innings. Ryan Merritt, I think only he went 18 or 19 batters faced and out and in the one game that he pitched. So if you win early, it allows you to stretch your bullpen farther. But whether or not that happens, I think council's just got to get out of this first round and then figure things out from there. And then maybe, maybe you bring Chase Anderson in back into the fold. I know he hasn't pitched in a couple weeks, but he's at least on paper, a good big league starting pitcher. You know, he's the kind of guy who you'd expect to be able to go out there and give you, 
five innings of okay baseball, even in a playoff scenario. So, but overall, let's try to get to to Braves Dodgers. I think the Brewers bullpen is is the biggest advantage of one unit over another, and with respect to guys. Trevor Story had an incredible wild card game. Uh, Arenado and Blackman are, are incredible players, but the quality falls off so fast. And you know, Bud Black doing things like taking Blackman out of the lineup, uh, you know, switching him out of the lineup uh, against Chicago that worries me. And I think that lineup depth, the Brewers have so many different buttons to push, and Council has done a better job of put, of pushing those buttons down the stretch. Um, I don't know. Do you have a prediction? We so far we we are unanimous in all of our predictions, and we have been wrong about all of our predictions. So so let's try to keep that streak up. I would pick the Brewers. I think uh, both because of all the points you made, and also the one advantage that uh, engaging in a bullpen game does bring is that you have more opportunities for pinch hitters, and that does benefit the Brewers, who have mm-hmm. guys like. Either Travis Shaw or Mike Moustakis, whoever they don't start, could come off the bench, and Curtis Granderson could come off the bench, and uh, that gives them flexibility to, you know, be able to bring in guys in rallies. Whereas the Rockies have what, like Pat Valeka coming off the bench. There's a, a dearth there, so I would pick the Brewers. Uh, but after the Rockies won in in Chicago, I, I wouldn't be shocked if they continue their streak especially like you said if they manage to even split the first two games and go back home with Marquez and Freeland starting yeah that that eventuality does scare me I I don't I'll pick Brewers in three I I mean picking them in four would be partially about being afraid of Marquez or or Freeland uh in Colorado but it also just seems like an unnecessary hedge I think uh the other thing is, if I'm wrong and the Rockies do win this series, it just sets them up as a bigger, uh, um, bigger underdog. So I'll I'll hang myself out there a little bit and go go Brewers in three. Um, so that brings us on to Braves Dodgers, which is a series I feel much less certain about. Uh, so let's start with Hyunjin Ryu starting in Game One, Clayton Kershaw versus Anibal Sanchez in Game Two, which would have been an incredible uh, National League matchup in 2010 or 2011. Um, where where do you stand on these Dodgers? I guess let's start with that. It's funny. I we're finally disagreeing about something. I feel much more confident about this matchup. Okay. Uh because I think the Dodgers rotation looks absolutely dominant right now. Ryu has been incredible since returning from the disabled list. I almost think the fact that they're starting him in game 1 says more about how good he's been as opposed to any worries about Kershaw. Of course, because of the way the schedule is structured, the Dodgers would still be able to turn to Clayton Kershaw in Game 5, even after pitching Game 2. That's what both Cleveland and New York did last year with Corey Kluber and CeCe Sabathia. But Ryu has been great. Kershaw gives them the advantage in Game 2, and Walker Bueller has been fantastic as well, as we saw on Monday against Colorado. So I think that if any series is going to end in a sweep, I would most likely pick this one just because I'm not sure if the Braves are going to score more than a single run in the first six innings of any game. Wow. Okay. I think I have a lot more faith in the Braves offense. I think the guys like you know, Nick Markakis after his incredible start to the season fell off a little bit, but he's still a guy who can get on base a lot. Acuna has turned into an absolute weapon. Um, he might be the best offensive player in the series. Uh, 
You're Freddy forgetting Freeman. about Max Muncy. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> they've got Freeman in the middle of the lineup. Ozzy Albies is a threat to uh, to hit for power and a run. Um, this is a, a surprise. Johan Camargo has gone completely under the radar because of Albies, Acuna, and Swanson. This is a really deep Atlanta lineup. I think I have a lot of I have a lot more faith. I mean, obviously. Kershaw is Kershaw, and Ryu's been great, and Bueller put in an incredible performance on Monday. Uh, obviously, the the Dodgers have an advantage in starting pitching, but and you know what? Top to bottom are probably the better team. You when you think about the depth, the uh, Dave Roberts' ability to to play matchups, but I think the Braves are going to make this close at the very least. I think this this lineup is. Um, is really solid top to bottom. I think Fultonavich is really underrated. Um, for some reason, despite running away with the National League East, it feels like we've paid way more attention to at least three of the other teams in the division all season. So I think the, the Braves have been better than most people realize. This, you know, their victory in the the National League East is about more than the Phillies and Nationals collapsing. It's a really good team of names that are either unfamiliar or of guys like Fulton Avich or Sanchez who weren't this good the last time we saw them. Uh, in any significant sample, or Marquez, for instance, and they have the—I think they have incredible potential to jump up and bite the Dodgers if the Dodgers are looking ahead. Yeah, I should say that this prediction is less about the Braves, who I might pick to beat either the Brewers or the Rockies. It's just more about the Dodgers. I can't help but remember in the playoffs last year when the Dodgers went seven and one through the National League playoffs and weren't really challenged in any of those games, and. That was with a rotation that might be worse than the rotation they're bringing to the series this year. If you compare, like, Rich Hill was the number two starter last year. He's the number four this year. And Yu Darvish was their number three starter last year. I'd probably take this version of Walker Bueller over last year's version of Yu Darvish. And what that means for Dave Roberts is, is he also has this bench flexibility that we were talking about with the Brewers where he, in the tiebreaker game, was able to potentially bring guys like Chris Taylor off the bench for a pinch-hitting appearance. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure. Like, if I went position by position through the lineup, I'm not sure if the Dodgers would win by that much, but the totality of that lineup and the rotation and the depth uh, just gives them such a clear advantage in my mind. But at the same time, there's a lot of like this year's Chris Taylor is not last year's Chris Taylor. Uh, the Yasmani Grandal of right now is not even the Yasmani Grandal of June. And Cody Bellinger is not as good this year as he was last year. They are worse in in a lot of small ways um, than they were last year. And the big jumps that they made up, you know, Bueller, for instance, uh, coming out, Muncie, uh, with his breakout season, you know, just the Kershaw's a little bit worse. Bellinger's a little bit worse. Taylor's a little bit worse. I don't know, you know, Kemp and, and Grandal have have fallen off since their hot starts to the season. You know, I don't know that I can look at this team the same way that I can look at uh, last year's team. You know, I don't assume that all the, that sir, I certainly don't assume that they're uh, equal or, or better than, um, than the team that went to seven games of the World Series last year. But what is it going to take to get people to stop talking about playoff Kershaw? Does he like need to throw a complete game shutout in game seven of the World Series? Well, so here is uh, all that, I guess, Braves bashing aside. The one caveat is if they win game one behind a strong start from Fultonavich, then all of a sudden 
Kershaw has a whole lot of pressure on him in game two. And I don't think it's real that he succumbs to pressure. I don't. But just the narrative would be like bubbling under the surface. Mm -hmm. They're ready to break out. And that would be the one thing that has me concerned if I'm a a cautious Dodgers fan. Uh, I think as long as he wins a World Series, it doesn't really matter how he would get the cliched monkey off of his back. Uh, But like even last year, he pitched really well in game one of the World Series. He pitched well in relief in game seven. But if you have one memory of Kershaw in the World Series last year, what is it? It's him unable to hold the lead in game five. And the other thing, if Fultonavich pitches lights out and beats Ryu, which is not like out of the realm of possibility, uh, and they get to Kershaw in game two, once you get beyond that starting rotation, I don't trust his bullpen. I mean, the bullpen had its own... Uh, issues last year in the postseason. I trust it even less. Like, I don't know what you're getting out of Kenley Jansen right now. Um, I don't know how much I can trust Scott Alexander. You know, they're throwing Pedro Baez in uh, in high leverage situations. Maeda isn't as, hasn't been as lights out. I mean, this is a really high standard comparing him to how good he was out of the bullpen late last year and in the postseason, but he hasn't been as good as in, uh, in his 19 relief appearances this year as he was last year. So, I think the the Dodgers have a lot of depth, but they have less quality than I think a lot of people realize. Do you trust the Braves bullpen? Because I think I would put them on similar footing in that they're decent, but not as reliable as either Milwaukee's or some of the, the elite bullpens in the American League. I mean, I certainly don't think they're as good as Milwaukee's or Houston's or or as deep as Cleveland's, for instance. Um, honestly, there, there are just so many unknown quantities in the Braves bullpen. I don't really, you know, you look down there, you see a lot of guys with ERAs and the twos and the low threes, a lot of nine and 10 strikeout per nines, but who knows how these guys are going to react in the, in the postseason? And that might be, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Who was expecting Scott Oberg to be uh, one of the pivotal relievers in, in this year's playoff picture. And, you know, and he's pitched fine. You know, it's like we were saying uh, on, on a uh, Monday's pod, like this is about results and I don't have any particular reason. You know, I don't know how, what results Atlanta's going to uh, come up with outside of, you know, I'm pretty confident about Fulton but apart from that, you know, I, I think it's, it's an unknown and that's not necessarily a bad thing that, you know, they've got no, I think there are some guys on this team like Acuna and, uh, and, and all these who, I think the lack of experience is not necessarily a bad thing. There's something to having been there before and knowing how you're going to react to that pressure situation. But there's also something to just being young enough that you don't know, you know, you don't know better than to be scared. You know, so I I could see some of these unknown, uh, unknown and younger players on in the bullpen and in the lineup coming up big, just, you know, because they don't know well enough to, to be frightened by the big lights. So this is, I, you know, the, the Braves could get blown out of the water in three games or they could come up and, and shock the Dodgers. I think there's more variability in how this team is going to perform uh, than any other team in the out of the uh, eight remaining. I feel bad for for sounding so confident that they're going to lose because I do like a lot of these players. We talked about Acuna and Albies like on April or May in this podcast. Uh, but the, the thing I'll say for them is that even if they lose this year and... and they have a very bright future ahead. Maybe that comes early this year, like in 2015, when the Cubs stunned the Cardinals 
uh, in the first round and were able to make it to the NLCS the year before the World Series run. That's certainly a possibility, uh, but I think the Dodgers, at, at least in my view, are just the wrong opponent for that to materialize. Yeah, maybe. Or you think about a team like the uh, the 2010 Giants who had so many good young players and you're thinking about them as, as building or, or that... Uh, that postseason being a, a building block for something else, they just went out and won the whole thing. Like that's, it's a possibility with Atlanta. So give me a prediction. Obviously, I think you're picking the Dodgers. I'm, I think I'm coming on a little bit stronger for Atlanta just because you said we disagreed about something. And I was having fun doing that for once, but so I'm, I, I will make my pick in my head while you're explaining yours. I, I'll pick Dodgers in three for the the reasons I said. Uh, if the Braves do get to one of the starters, I'd be somewhat surprised. I just have a lot of faith in the Dodgers rotation right now and the depth of their lineup, which I think is uh, pretty clearly the best in the National League. So they have, in my view, the the advantage in all phases of the game. I could see a road to Atlanta in four, and I really want to pick it, but I, I don't know. If, if this was about, you know what, this is about having fun rather than being being right. Give me Atlanta in four. Um you know, I, I think the Dodgers are probably the better team, but but I could see this road. You know, nobody gives a shit if if you're right or wrong about these things. So, all right, we will we'll be back after the weekend's action. When if the Dodgers are up two nothing, you can berate me if you so choose. Uh, but until then, we'll uh, we'll be talking about and writing about the games and preparing our our coverage for next week. So uh, I look forward to talking to you on uh, on I guess Tuesday morning. Have a good one. Thanks to Zach for joining me, and we'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh. All right, I'm joined now for the American League half of the bracket by a man who was at New Yankee Stadium last night, a man who is still uh, shaking champagne out of his crevices uh, by the sound of him. Ben Lindbergh, how you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, we were just talking before we started recording. I don't have a high opinion of New Yankee Stadium as someone who grew up going to the old place, but it was pretty loud last night. I think maybe the the place is just accruing some character over the years. Maybe it's getting a, a little dirtier and messier and has a little more history attached to it. So it was shaken last night. Do you agree? Bobby was uh, was opining about he was bemoaning the corporate nature of New Yankee Stadium. Do you think it's becoming less corporate as time goes on? I don't know that the Yankees will ever become less corporate. I think they are the embodiment of corporate. But it's a stadium that has a moat to protect the rich people and also has George Steinbrenner's visage peering down at everyone from the outfield wall. And it's deafening and it's kind of cookie cutter in some ways. It's just not a great stadium. But it's getting louder and there was a lot to cheer about in the wildcard game. Yeah. Are they distributing uh, military helmets to <laughs> fans in left field to protect them from Giancarlo Stanton? Yeah. Or right field to prevent them from Luke Voigt, who <laughs> nearly reached the right field seats last night. It's a very powerful lineup, and that is probably something that we are about to talk about as we preview this matchup with Boston, which I can't believe it has been so long. Can't. Literal disbelief. I I thought, like, (laughs) who was one of the 200,000 Red Sox or Yankees fans in in baseball media was saying that, you know, can't can't believe it's been this long since 2004. I was thinking they must have once in in like the late 2000s had like a three game division series that I was just forgetting. And apparently this is just, I mean, there's, they, 
it's been 14. I mean, yeah, we not were, only has we been 14 years, the last time it happened was the, the 0304 right back to back. That was yeah. two of the best uh, ALCS matchups of our lifetime. Of course, they play each other 19 games a year, which is probably why it seems That's like. That's why it feels. And, <laughs> right. and 14 of them are on primetime on yes. Fox or ESPN. And so. 14 of them last four hours, which mm-hmm. will be the case in this series, undoubtedly. But yeah, I mean, there's some juice here. Yankees, Red Sox, I'm sure that even though it has been 14 years, I'm sure that most of America is fine with it being another 14 years before this happened again. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, these are teams that everyone loves to hate if they don't actively root for them. So I'm looking forward to the series. Yeah. And as much as I'm tired of both of these teams as, as entities, you know, there's <laughs> something, it is special when they play each other. I mean, this yeah. is baseball's premier, it's, it's the best premier rivalry. rivalry. Yeah. It's, I don't know if it's the, you know, that we could litigate what constitutes a, a great rivalry. I'm as eager to do that as I am to relitigate the <laughs> bullpenning, which, <sighs> It might kill me, Ben. This <laughs> the the bullpen takes on both pro and and anti are going to be the fucking to death of me by the by the end of this month. bullpen season. Yeah, but I mean, it was exciting to be in Yankee Stadium once it became clear that the Yankees were going to wipe away the A's, and you start getting the "We Want Boston" chants, and there's something special about that. That's and cool. I think yeah. it was. It seemed to be based on Slack. It seemed to be striking a little fear into the heart of our boss, Bill Simmons, and uh, I don't know. There's a bit of an intimidation factor, and I think there are some ways in which the Yankees are a better playoff team than the Red Mm -hmm. Sox, if not necessarily a better team, period. Yeah. Roger Sherman, who's a Yankees fan who just moved out to L.A. and is now going to see Bill four or five times a week mm-hmm. is was tweeting about how he was going to get fired. <laughs> like, listen, Chuckles, if I made it through the Super Bowl and a Celtics Sixers <laughs> playoff series within a couple months of each other, yes. I don't think there's anything Roger can do to uh, no. to endanger his employment. The ringer but, doesn't discriminate based on no, sports. Fandom. Although if he takes that as a challenge, I <laughs> will be eager to discuss that at the end of the se- uh, series. So you mentioned Luke Voigt. And I talked about John Carlos Stanton, and I have a couple bullet points about this series uh, in a document I shared with you. The first bullet point is it big boy season. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Luke Boyd is let's start there. Beefy. I mean, large man. Judge and Stanton. Large corn fed Missouri beef. <laughs> Judge and Stanton are even larger, obviously, but they are larger in a way that you feel like they probably take their shirts off a lot. I don't know. Uh, you know, probably Luke Voigt does too. You don't think Luke Voigt <laughs> takes his shirt does. off? It Luke Voigt like, had a shirt yeah, halfway he, off he during the game a, last night. A few buttons on buttons so that his beautiful chest hair could poke through. And mm. uh, yeah, he is a large framed person. And I know the Yankees had the analytics and they liked his contact rate and they liked how he hit to the opposite field and thought he'd be a good fit for Yankee Stadium. I'm pretty sure that whatever they projected for Luke Voigt, he has far, far exceeded it. And I don't know whether he is just this year's Shane Spencer and he'll never do something like this again or whether he is actually amazing. (laughs) But the Yankees lineup is deep and powerful and I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know because this is a team that just hit the most home runs of any team ever. But I do think that is an advantage. And 
I know the Yankees have had a lot of home run reliant teams over the last decade or two. And in the past, you used to hear that that would be a problem for them when you got to the playoffs because people used to think and maybe still do think that in the playoffs, you just kind of have to make contact and play small ball and make things happen. But I think it's actually the opposite. History has shown that the home run reliant lineups do better. Certainly, certainly last year. I don't know how you can look at last year's playoffs and think that. You can't hit, you can't get a home run when you need one. Everyone hit home runs last year all the time. But yeah, historically speaking, just because it's harder to string together hits and walks and just sort of small sequence offense in October because you're facing really good pitching and good defenses and maybe it's cold out. And so you want to just have the big boppers who don't care what temperature it is or what pitcher you're facing. Aaron Judge, John Carlson, these guys are going to hit the ball 400, 500 feet anyway. So In that sense, I think the Yankees are better positioned because the Red Sox have a good offense too, but actually the second least home run reliant offense of any surviving playoff team after the Braves. So I think the Yankees are better set up in that way, but probably the bullpen is the bigger and more obvious edge here. Yeah, and before we move on, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Luke Voigt is a product of the state of Missouri's premier college baseball program, the Missouri <laughs> State Bears. Inside joke. Which <laughs> is a conversation a program we were that, having about Missouri college baseball. I don't know. You probably wouldn't have been remiss you, not to mention that. But <laughs> you, you walked right into that. Missouri <laughs> State, also a, a school that knows a thing or two about big, beefy sluggers with uh-huh. Ryan Howard uh, counted yeah, among its right. major league alumni and Jake Berger, mm-hmm. uh, nominative determinism, the the White Sox prospects. So uh-huh. they grow them big in the show me state. <laughs> yes, they um, do. So you, you mentioned the bullpen. I think that's going to be a big differentiating factor, perhaps yeah. the big dif- differentiating factor. Yeah, and we talked about it on our first podcast after the trade deadline. I think we were all sort of surprised that the Red Sox had not made a bullpen move. The Yankees did, of course. They went out and got Zach Britton, even though they needed another bullpen arm less than the Red Sox probably did. And yeah, I think that is the big edge here. And you could say that maybe the Red Sox need the bullpen a little less than the Yankees. Maybe they have a stronger rotation, but... I mean, we're already tired of of talking about it. I think more top heavy rotation. I think. Yeah. I don't know if they're stronger one through four. Perhaps not, but it's a problem. I mean, they just don't have that many guys that you can bring out and have that kind of confidence in because they're just throwing flames and have nasty breaking balls. I mean. They have good relievers there. There aren't really truly terrible bullpens in this playoff field, but there are definitely weaknesses there, whereas the Yankees, no matter what inning it is, they can bring out someone who's going to give you a lot of confidence, confidence, and it's basically a a late-inning arm or set-up man or potential closer or has been a closer before. You basically go five, six arms deep in that pen, and you don't in Boston's. The bullpen, I think, is a, a... is probably the area where one team has the biggest advantage over the other Mm -hmm. when you go from Yankees to Red Sox. But if you want to talk about things that this series might hinge on, I think you have to start with Chris Sale. Mm -hmm. What do you expect from him? It's hard to know because he's been fluctuating a lot. And obviously he was on the DL twice in the second half with Mm -hmm. shoulder problems and he would come back and pitch okay and then go back on the DL. And it wasn't clear how much of that was just resting him and getting him ready, but clearly there was some problem there. And then, of course, in his most recent start, his velocity was significantly down and that's always worrisome. And And not just down a lot and not just in that last start, but across the entire month of September. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went and looked it up on Brooks Baseball 
baseball. The results in September were pretty good. It's a 375 ERA with 18 strikeouts and 12 innings, but only 12 innings pitched and the strike and the average fastball velocity is down from 96 to 97 in the middle of the season to a little to a shade under 93 in September and Almost as important, the changeup differential from fat or the velocity differential from fastball to changeup is down from about ten miles an hour to less than seven, mm-hmm. and that could be a big problem. Yeah, and I think this has been a problem throughout his career. I mean, people have always thought that he was about to break because of his highly unorthodox delivery, and he hadn't broken at all until well recently. And the Red Sox hope he's not broken, but really, he's been extremely healthy. But he has had a tendency to kind of break down or wear down, at least when it comes to September, October. His OPS allowed for his career in September, October in the regular season is almost 750, which is more than 100 points higher than in any other month. And really, his first half, second half splits on a career level are pretty dramatic. And with a lot of guys, you might kind of dismiss that as randomness or something, but it's a pretty big sample. And, you know, he is sort of a skinny guy and you wonder whether the long season just takes a toll on him. And maybe that is why the Red Sox were handling him so cautiously and giving him plenty of time off. And he didn't throw that many innings this year, but he does not seem to be 100%. And, you know, I know Alex Cora said something along the lines of, well, even if he's not throwing his hardest, he's still really good and he knows how to pitch. And certainly that's true, but he may not be the Cy Young Award winner that he looked like he would be before the shoulder issues popped up. I mean, on a, on a rate basis, he's got a pretty good argument for best pitcher in baseball this year, including mm-hmm. guys like Snell and DeGrom. Yeah, um, especially considering predict- the competition. Could, and the and the ballpark he's pitching. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's entirely possible that Sale was just sort of taking it easy and resting in September, and he was sandbagging us, and he'll come out there on 99 in game one. Yeah. But if he's not, you know, Porcello and Price are good, but that that pitching staff thins out real fast. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about at this point in the season, you really get a, uh, an appreciation for how much better the American league is at the top as opposed to the national league. Cause I'm, you know, I'm talking about how the Red Sox pitching staff is a weakness. Meanwhile, 10 minutes ago when I was talking to Zach, we were talking about Milwaukee or, or, uh, or uh, Colorado or Atlanta possibly getting through to the, uh, to the league championship series and none of those staffs is within 10 miles of what even Boston has. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think if it's entirely possible that the, that the Red Sox go out in the first round and they will be a little hard done by if they do, just because, you know, I, the four best teams in baseball are on this side of the bracket. And, you know, to a certain extent, there's nothing you can do about it. Sometimes you just run into a good team at the wrong time. And I, actually think that's what's going to happen at Boston. Mm -hmm. And everyone will be watching Price, of course, because I think Red Sox fans have little confidence in Price, especially against the Yankees. And there is obviously a history there that supports that. But he has been a really effective pitcher in the second half of the season. Mm -hmm. I think really since the last time he got shelled by the Yankees in the middle of the year, he's made some changes. He's been a lot better. Maybe this is the year that Price will actually pitch that kind of shut him down game that everyone's been waiting for against the Yankees, but they really will need that, especially if Sale is is somewhat compromised. And, you know, the bullpen gets a bit better because they get to 
put some starters in there. They get to put Rodriguez and Wright and Evaldi in there. So there's more depth. But again, there just is not the late inning dominance that you see from the Yankees. So I think overall, the Red Sox, you know, as a regular season team, certainly the equal of the Yankees, if not better. But and we should we should mention because we haven't so far, I think the Red Sox have the two best hitters in the series and Betts sure. and Martinez. And yeah. that's I mean, we saw you would talk about Chris Sale in the playoffs. I mean the numbers say he didn't pitch that well in Houston, but Jose Altuve just beat him up yeah. when Altuve was. And you could see Betts doing something like what Altuve did in the division series last year. Definitely. So that's yeah. definitely on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the Yankees probably have the better lineup overall, but yes. the, the heart of the Red Sox lineup is is as scary as anyone's. So I'm going to I'm going to make you do predictions. I made Zach predict down to the game. Ugh. And so <laughs> you have to, too. All right. I guess I'll go Yankees in six. I so I was saying Yankees in six in my head. It's only a best of five series. Oh, right. Like, <laughs> there should never be a, a Red Sox Yankees. I know. They should all go seven. <laughs> all right. Well, in that case, I will say Yankees in four. Yeah, that's what I. That's the exact <laughs> same mental calculus I had. I'm so used to these things going yeah. seven should with the World Series on the yeah. line. It didn't occur to me that there was a best of five series. I'm so glad you did that too. Old habits. All right. Let's let's move on to to. Cleveland and Houston, yeah. I think the national attention will, with good reason, be on the on the Red Sox and the Yankees. I'm as excited for this particular Astros-Indian series as I've been for a division series matchup, not counting a uh, series that I had a personal stake in. But mm-hmm. just as a neutral observer, I am can, cannot wait for this one. Yeah, well, this is the antidote to bullpenning, right? This is the great hope. If you don't want to see the mm-hmm. playoffs be all about bullpens, these are two rotations that go four deep and are dominant all the way down. So I think, I don't know that there is even an edge rotation-wise here. I mean, at the top, it starts right off with Verlander Kluber. It doesn't really get better than that. And really, all the way down, it's it's a pretty even matchup, I think. So I think... The Astros have the better bullpen, so when you get into the bullpen, they have the edge, and Cleveland's, even with the addition of Brad Hand, is is shaky. This is not the Indians' bullpen that we saw a few years ago, but, I mean, they don't need to use it all that much. We'll see how deep Bauer can go in games because, of course, he's only recently returned. Right now, the latest thing that I saw that's from Jordan Bastian, friend of the pod, Mm -hmm. saying that he's Bauer's lined up to start game four, but he might be... I mean, the thing about Bauer is he thinks he can pitch nine innings every single day. Yes, right. And so he's going to try to get in these games. And it seems like Terry Francona would be willing to or is planning on using him as a high leverage reliever on a throw throw day in the mm-hmm. first couple games of the series in Houston. So that would be interesting to particularly it's it bums me out that it doesn't look like we're going to get the Bauer versus Cole grudge match. But uh, <laughs> right. But Bauer could be a huge wild card as a weapon who could come out of the bullpen early in the series and then give you six or seven innings in game four. Yeah. And I've said this elsewhere, so apologies to to people who listen to me in multiple places, but I do feel strongly about this that I think aesthetically there is really something to be said for traditional starting pitching over yes. bullpenning. And bullpenning makes all the sense in the world. I think it didn't work out for the A's in the wild card game, but I think it was the strategy that best served them. But- I think it yeah. I you know what? I think it did work out. I think that they got through 
with Hendrickson and Trevino mm-hmm. giving up two runs in five innings. Right, to like, the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. Which, yeah, yeah, like they didn't lose that game because their their bullpenners screwed up. They lost because of because one uh, trying and right. who's been the best reliever Rodney in baseball gave, gave up, up the yeah. runs. Right, right, and Fernando Rodney's infinite ERA, which is going to be a problem <laughs> whenever it comes in. Right. So, you know, I to say just because they lost that game that the process was bad. It bugs me a little bit, yes. but I, I'm also 100% with you right. that, that the aesthetics and the normative value of bullpenning is a completely different proposition than whether or not it makes tactical sense in certain situations. Mm-hmm. So and I don't gonna, even mean that just in the sense that bullpenning may increase strikeout rates and maybe strikeouts are boring or because it means more pitching changes and pitching changes are boring. I mean it also just in a narrative sense Having a starting pitcher, I've said this, but he's sort of like the protagonist of the story. Absolutely. At least traditionally speaking, he is the one, he is the anchor, he's the constant in the story of the game. You've got the batting order, it's guys coming and going, you've got relievers coming and entering. I mean, those guys are all sort of shuffling, and the starter is just there at the center, and you get to see how the starter adjusts as he goes through the lineup multiple times. Well, maybe he's thrown a bunch of fastballs the first time. Now he's mixing in more breaking balls, or maybe he didn't have a feel for this pitch early in the game, and he wasn't throwing it, or now he suddenly is throwing it, and hey, he's getting better, or maybe he's wearing down, and you can see the fatigue on his face, and you can see his velocity dipping, and he's having to get wily and find clever ways to get through the lineup. I mean, all of that is really interesting. It's just something you get to follow for the long haul throughout the game and track the ups and downs. And now if you do the bullpen game, you don't get that. You just get a fresh face every inning who's going max effort and throwing his best pitches constantly. And it makes all the sense in the world. I would totally advise teams to do it, but it's just not as fun, frankly. And particularly in these pressure-packed postseason situations, like you think of Morris versus Smoltz in 91, or you think of, yeah. of Bob Gibson versus Mickey Lolich in, uh, in 1968. Like how many times you don't get that anywhere else in sports, that sort of mono a mono, yeah, like something like out of the Iliad. Out, I guess. But, yeah, yeah. Like that's even as much as, you know, you want to talk about Michael Jordan taking the last shot. Like that's an individual play. That's the mm-hmm. equivalent of hitting a, a walk-off home run. This is one guy dragging himself out there inning after inning. And you see that entire narrative arc you just described. Yes. And it's incredible mm-hmm. from a literary perspective almost. And you don't, you know, teamwork isn't as... It's not as epic, you know, mm-hmm. to use that, you know, not in the internet sense of the word, but in like the Homeric sense of the word, that we could see this happen every single game based on the two starting starting pitchers in this series is unbelievably compelling to me. Mm-hmm. And you can look back in history and, and say that teams were screwing up or leaving runs on the table by leaving those guys in as long as they did. You could say that about Pedro in 2003, but... There was really a compelling aspect, and even to it. when he fails, even when Pedro fails, when he mm-hmm. when he gets left in an inning too long, that's or Matt Harvey in in 2015. Even when it doesn't work, it's an incredible storyline. Yeah, so I'm, right. I don't know if you can tell, I'm really fucking jazzed for this. So. Yeah. So this series, uh, I don't know. For all we know, they'll just pull these guys after four anyway, because that's what teams do these days. But this is our best chance for that kind of just slugging it out. I mean, Verlander never wants to leave a game and no one wants to be the one to tell him mm-hmm. he has to. So 
I think, yeah, we'll we'll see some pretty compelling matchups there. I mean, I think, you know, the Astros are just the best team in baseball. I, they didn't have the best record, so. but I yeah. do think they were the best and are the best. And they're almost the best at everything. I mean, their starting is as good as anyone. Their bullpen is as good as anyone. Their lineup is as good as anyone. This is a lineup that walks a lot and doesn't strike out a lot and still manages to hit for some power. I mean, it does everything well. They're just really, really good all the way down. So I can't think of a reason not to favor them. And I think the Indians probably look a, a bit better than they would otherwise just because they were in what is officially, I believe, the second worst division ever after the 2005 NL West. So they beat up on the AL Central and, you know, all their stats are are somewhat inflated because of that. But it, it's a good team. Mm-hmm. And we're going to see, I mean, the makeup of this Indians team is interesting because we're seeing Lindor Ramirez and Michael Brantley all firing on all cylinders at the same time. Josh Donaldson's an interesting mm-hmm. uh, X factor for this series. Um, I don't know. And from the Astros perspective, like even, even the bench is interesting, how they use yeah. their catchers, who they use in, in one time or another Miles straw. I haven't seen uh, a division series roster, but I imagine Miles Straw is going to be on it, and he could be that Terrence Gore like figure. Except, unlike Terrence <laughs> Gore, as much, he can hopefully. hit a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, yeah, even if he does, even if they leave him in as a defensive replacement, he's useful in other facets of the game. But this is gonna this is gonna come down to starting pitching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's almost even in that area. So, I. would probably go Astros in four, I suppose. I never really pick a team to sweep because it it just seems like it's never the likeliest outcome to me. But I think the Astros have the edge here. Yeah, I, I'd go Astros in five. If this doesn't go five, I don't know. I mean, the last the last time I was this excited about a division series uh, was the, the Blue Jays-Rangers rematch yeah. in 2016. And that turned out to be a total dud. So if this turns out to be a total dud, I might never recover. Um, I hope this goes five. And if it does, I think the Astros are going to win. They're the, I think they're the better team mm-hmm. up and down. You can make the argument that their rotation is better just on its own. Yeah. Um, but I I imagine the top four pitchers on both of these teams are just going to pitch so many innings that mm-hmm. it's – it's going to outweigh all other concerns. Yeah, and I'll be curious. I think this may be the postseason when we see relievers pitch more than starters. We've never seen that. Last year, I think it got up to 46.5% of innings were pitched by relievers. And of course, relievers gained on starters in this regular season. And we've seen every year managers just get more and more willing to ride their bullpens in October. So I'm guessing this might be the year that we go over the halfway point and see more more relievers pitching than starters. But if anyone is going to stem that tide, it will be the Indians and to a lesser extent, the Astros and this series. It'll be interesting to see, you know, we saw that tandem starter, Charlie Morton, Lance McCullers, mm-hmm. two-headed dragon last year. We'll see if something like that happens again. It was the There's possibility the Astros could do that with Josh James in some some capacity. I, I think the shape of the series will be determined in large part um, by who even makes a roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just look at this Astros bullpen. They, they've they got useful players who are going to stay home uh, just because they're so deep in so many different facets of the game. Um, I hope it goes five, whoever wins. Yeah, I hope so too. And, and that is something that the advantage of being deep is, is somewhat diminished in the playoffs. And so, you know, teams like the Dodgers, for instance, or the Astros who have just placed this emphasis on. I actually depth. disagree. I think you it think matters. So? A, I think I don't, I don't you know. saw I mean, that you saw in the playoff game. 
you know, in the one game playoff, well, if you go yes. 13 deep on your bench, how much, you know, how much sooner could the, I mean, the Rockies won, mm-hmm. but they're giving Pat Valaika some of the most important uh, <laughs> at bats of the season. Yeah. Terrence Gore's coming up behind nullifying not only his spot in the order, but making Chris Bryant a guy you could just pitch around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chris Bryant volunteered to get himself out, essentially, in a key at bat in, yeah. in that game when, uh, when they were of, trying to essentially walk terrible him. hitting in that game. Man of <laughs> weird managing in that game. Terrence Gore. It was not the marquee matchups that we expect no. to see this time so, of year. But, yeah, well, I, I mean, think depth, my contention is if, if you less, go that deep, then... Right, then if you go can, 13 innings, sure. Yeah. Uh, depth matters less, I think, in the sense that you don't need a fifth starter, for no. instance. You know, you you don't need the, the ninth bullpen guy, necessarily. But yes, I mean, certainly having the the tactical flexibility, particularly in a wild card game, because in a wild card game, you don't even need starters. So you can load up your bench and have the the stolen base specialist and the pinch hitter. And, and in theory, that helps and you still somehow run out of position players. <laughs> and still lose because literally the worst hitter in baseball other than Terrence Gore, probably Tony Walters gets the, the crucial hit. So that just that happens, too. Yeah, I, I mean, we were talking about. At some point, like the possibility of whether Caratini would pinch hit for uh, for Cole Hamels came up, and I was <laughs> yeah. like, I think Hamels is a better hitter than Terrence Gore is. <laughs> yeah, I might leave him in the so anyway. I'm excited. Me I think too. this is the the best slate of. I'm I'm really looking forward to these uh, to the National League end of the bracket, but these these two uh, division series in the American League, just in terms of quality and and in terms of, it's not just two sets of two great teams coming up against each other. They intersect in really interesting ways. So mm-hmm. I, knowing our luck, it'll all be yeah. eight, three games. They'll both be sweeps. I know. But, I'm hoping, and we'll learn nothing, but. <laughs> I'm hoping the next time we talk, these series will just be getting started, really, and that yeah. nothing will be resolved by then. Yeah, particularly because if they're over, I'm going to make you make more predictions. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, so, <laughs> all right. That that feels like a good uh, good place to end it. Mm-hmm. Join us for, uh, for more ALDS coverage and more predictions, more Missouri college baseball trash talk uh, when we reconvene after the weekend. Um, that'll, I believe, be on, on Tuesday morning. We'll, uh, we'll record the next installment and we'll hopefully still have a, a few games to look forward to. So, all right, Ben, thanks for, for joining me. I hope you had fun. I did. Talk to you next week. That'll do it for this edition of the Ringer MLB show. Uh, we'll be back early next week to talk about the first couple games of the of the divisional round and preview the action for the rest of the round. Thanks to Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for stitching everything together. Thanks to Luke Voigt and Mookie Betts and Trevor Bauer and Mike Fultonavich for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the weekend's action and we'll see you next time. It big boy season. Luke Floyd is beefy. Large corn-fed Missouri beef.